Hey everyone, it's Ben, and I am, as many of you are, alone in my house. I've replaced my normal business casual attire with sweatpants and my favorite Snoop Dogg hoodie, and my commute to the studio has changed from 15 minutes to 15 feet. We recorded this episode at the beginning of March, and so much has changed since then that I wanted to record this new opening and send love and compassion to everyone during this time. We are truly all in this together, and we'll make it through together. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, let's stop and take a deep, collective breath. Okay, so in for for Mississippi and out for for Mississippi. If you're sitting in April, go ahead and close your eyes while we do this. Okay, all together now. As this new reality sets in for our communities, our country, and our world, please know that we at Squeaky Clean are going to do our small part to keep some normalcy in your life. We'll keep releasing episodes on our normal schedule, and we hope that you continue on the journey with us as we explore the world of clean energy. So thanks so much for tuning in. Let's do our part to help one another, and I wish you and your loved ones safety and health during these times. Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Ben Stockdale. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. This is Jarvis Arrington, the intern for the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Bringing the latest in clean energy right to your ears. Always. Personally, I'm very excited for today's show. Today's guest is an extremely successful uh, champion for clean energy. Yes, a champion indeed. She has more degrees than I have fingers on both of my <laughs> hands. And uh, yeah, I think they're just like making new degrees for her because yep. I mean, at this point, I think she's run out of things to study. Correct. Yeah, but she finds new ones. Yeah, yeah, she's found a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you're you're getting your undergrad degree right now. So what do you think? Maybe like five, six, seven. We're gonna finish degrees? this one. We're gonna finish this one and probably call it a day. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. kudos to her. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, Jarvis, who's getting our country shout out today? Our country shout out is going to my home country of Colombia. So hello to all the listeners there. Yes, yes. yes. Do you want to speak in your native tongue? Yes, I shall speak in my native (laughs) tongue. Um, I'm going to give a little shout out to my family, to all the uh, Lombanas that are in Colombia. So hola, buenos dias. And thank you for tuning in, for sure. Yes. Does your family listen to the show? They do. Yeah, they actually do. So they will hear this. Yeah. Awesome. So they're learning about clean energy. Yes, they are. In Columbia, learning about clean energy. And uh, I'll be there later this week, so I'll get to talk oh, to them nice. about that. So, yeah. Very cool. Educate Very cool. them. Yeah. Very cool. Now, Ben, who is getting, what city is getting our squeaky clean shout out? We are giving a squeaky clean welcome to our friends in Elon, North Carolina. Elon is a small but mighty town, home of, of course, Elon University. Yep, the very prestigious university. Yes, yeah. yes, and they're growing too. I know that they've got some some programs that they're 
they're uh, kicking up into gear. So we love we're to excited see it. about that. And without further ado, sounds like we should jump into this show. Let's do it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Clean energy. Our guest today is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science and affiliated with the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management and the Environmental Studies Department at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Our guest works on energy, climate, and environmental politics. She is frequently quoted in national media, and she's also been a guest on our favorite energy podcast, The Energy Gang, which we love. She completed her PhD in public policy in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning's Environmental Policy and Planning Group at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, aka MIT. Our guest has also received a master's from MIT's Political Science Department. Before that, she completed an MPA in Environmental Science and Policy at the School of International and Public Affairs and the Earth Institute at Columbia University. She also has a BSc in Psychology and East Asian Studies from the University of Toronto. Prior to academia, she worked at the Parliament of Canada and Resources for the Future. Friends of the pod, let's give a Wiki clean welcome to our very special guest today, Professor Leah Stokes. Leah, welcome to the pod. Oh, thank you so much for having me on and for that very generous introduction. <laughs> yeah, well, wow. I mean, like, what have you not done? Like, are there any degrees <laughs> that you don't have? <laughs> yeah, I have a collect them all mentality. It's like Pokemon or something like that. <laughs> yes, definitely. Well, you definitely uh, you definitely deserve to, to have it on the wall because, yeah, you've done it a lot. It's really awesome. Great. Yeah, well, thanks so much. I'm looking at my degrees right now. I'm in my office, so there they are. It's true. I did get a few degrees along the way. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, you know, let's jump into this conversation. Like I said, we are really excited to have you on the show today. I think it's especially important right now as we are right in the middle of election season, you know, we're gearing up for the, you know, we're in the middle of the primaries, gearing up to make the nomination for the Democrats. Of course, President Trump is going to be uh, campaigning up until November. So we're right in the middle of politics season right here. But can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into clean energy? Yeah, so um, when I was an undergraduate at the University of Toronto, I started working on research uh, to get people to try to save energy, energy conservation, energy efficiency work. And that work was actually pretty successful. We deployed programs in student residences and offices on campus, and we got to save about 12% of the energy that was being used in those offices. But what I learned through that experience is that as great as that was, uh, I needed to understand public policy in order to make an even bigger difference. That what our government does, state legislators, uh, congressional representatives, the president, what all these people do matters so much for taking on the climate crisis and increasing clean energy. So I got really interested in understanding public policy to a greater degree, and um, that's where I am right now. I work a lot on state-level clean energy laws, and I actually have a book coming out uh, this month about uh, state-level renewable portfolio standards. It's called short-circuiting policy. 
Wow, awesome. And, and, and what specifically is that book about? I look at the adoption of renewable energy laws across the American states over the past several decades. Um, there's a little bit on North Carolina in there. And for a while, I actually thought that I might include North Carolina as one of my cases, but I did not in the end. Um, and so I look at the ways that these policies got passed and how they have changed over time and um, some of the forces that are increasing the clean energy transition and some that are kind of holding it back. Got you, got you. Well, we love anyone that wants to look at North Carolina's clean energy uh, landscape because we're really proud of it. I mean, you know, we're, we're number two in solar capacity, so we're really excited about that. And it's taken a lot of policy strides for us to get here. Mm -hmm. You know, we had our first REPS, our Renewable Energy Portfolio Standard. That was 2007. And uh, I mean, I was. it's funny now because I'm actually going around the state uh, touring legislators uh, at utility scale sites and talking about clean energy. And, you know, we're touring like five megawatt facilities. And, and it's funny to hear people who have been in the industry for a while saying, man, I remember the first time we got a one megawatt facility. Like that was such a big deal. And, you know, it was, it was so hard to get that done. And now, I mean, mm -hmm. they're, they're rolling out, you know, hundred megawatt projects. So it's so, it's so cool to see how far the industry has come in such a short amount of time. Yes. Uh, when I first got interested in solar, I was an undergraduate and we had a policy in Ontario, Canada called a feed-in tariff, which is modeled after PERPA and uh, Germany's feed-in tariff. And basically what it is, is that you pay people a cents per kilowatt hour for the amount of electricity that they provide to the grid. It's kind of like net metering, but you get a premium price. Anyway, we, um, we got a solar project built on campus back then. This was back in 2007. And I think it might have been 70 kilowatts or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, nice. in hindsight, not a huge project, but was definitely a big project uh, more than a decade ago. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that in a lot of ways, some of those sites are really symbolic just to show people, you know, what clean energy looks like. I mean, we're, we're going around, there's a, there's, a, there's a program in North Carolina called NC Green Power, mm. and they install solar projects at K-12 schools. And, you know, they're, they're, they're not big projects. I mean, they're 50 kilowatt projects right in the front of the school. But really what it does is it, is it physically shows people clean energy. And then a cool thing, too, is you can actually track that energy that's being created from these projects. And, you know, even though it might not be a lot, it's just so great to be able to, to physically show people what these projects can do, even on such a small scale. Yeah, exactly. Um... You know, it was a really important experience for myself, too, because I just learned how, uh, you know, we can make a difference and start to install this technology and start to transition the grid. And uh, I think today, you know, the costs have fallen so much. And so, um, you know, I think that we're just going to continue to see more and more renewable energy. Right, right. Well, you know, obviously 2020 is a huge year for politics, not just in North Carolina, but nationwide. What role do you see clean energy playing in this election? Well, it's been a really um, exciting time because we have had a big conversation around clean energy and climate policy like we've never had before. And I think we can thank a number of people who got in the race to specifically raise 
climate change as an issue. That includes Governor Jay Inslee from Washington State, uh, Tom Steyer, a businessman from California. Um, even Michael Bloomberg has a pretty strong record of supporting climate action through uh, his time as the mayor of New York City, as well as through the Beyond Coal and now Beyond Carbon campaigns that he has funded with the Sierra Club. And then, of course, we have other candidates uh, like Elizabeth Warren, who have really centered clean manufacturing as a key idea within her campaign. And the same can be said for Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg and, of course, Bernie Sanders. And so we have a lot of candidates out there who are saying it's time for the United States to be a leader in clean energy. And um, I think that that is even starting to uh, get into the Republican Party. So just last week, um, Senator Lisa Murkowski and Senator Joe Manchin uh, that would be the Democratic and the Republican uh, ranking and minority members on the committee in the Senate. They put out a new bill, which has uh, lots of focus on energy efficiency, um, a little bit of wind and solar, uh, lots of good ideas for how we can start to make the clean energy transition. You know, that bill is not a big climate bill and it doesn't go far enough, but it's still really exciting that in 2020, we have some Republican leaders in the Senate who are willing to say that the United States uh, needs to be a leader in clean energy. Yeah, you know, and I think that in North Carolina, it's interesting, too, because, you know, since the 1800s, we had a Democrat-controlled House and Senate in our state legislature. And it wasn't until 2010 that both the chambers flipped in that huge red wave in the in the 2010 uh, midterms. And we had a Republican legislature for the first time in over a century. So, you know, a lot of people were wondering what that would do to clean energy. And thankfully, unfortunately, we've still been able to grow the industry to, again, being number two in the country. So it really is thanks to Republican leadership in a lot of ways that North Carolina has really been able to grow as a, as a leader in clean energy. And I think it marks this shift in how people, especially political leaders have changed their feelings of clean energy over time. So I'm wondering, how have you seen voters' feelings changing their perspective on clean energy over time? Yeah, so um, clean energy is very popular across the political spectrum. Um, you know, Republicans, independents, and Democrats are all very supportive of uh, increasing the amount of federal funding that goes into research and development, and also of states taking action to pass higher clean energy and renewable energy targets, these renewable portfolio standards or clean electricity standards. Um, you know, unfortunately, that has fallen a little bit in the past uh, couple years um, among Republicans, but it has started to rise up again in the last couple years. And I think that as climate change, the impacts become clearer uh, including for coastal states that are dealing with sea level rise and hurricanes. Uh, I think that there's a lot of growing support amongst Republicans to take a leadership role in, um, in driving the clean energy transition. And so, for example, recent polling from 
Pew, as well as the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication, shows that young Republicans are actually very supportive of climate action um, and that there is far less of a partisan gap in terms of acting on climate change amongst young people than we see amongst older generations. So I think that we're really starting to turn a corner and um, I think we're going to start to see a lot of states uh, taking on this challenge. You know, we have states across the country that are not traditionally seen as blue states, places like New Mexico, for example, that are currently phasing out their coal power and putting in place really strong uh, clean energy targets. So we could see a lot of other purple states and maybe even red states step up to the challenge too. Yeah, well, that's really encouraging to hear. And I'm just curious, you know, when when I'm talking to legislators, especially conservative legislators, really what I think is is increasing their support for clean energy are the sheer economics behind clean energy. You know, the jobs that it brings to their community, the property mm-hmm. tax and, and the property tax increases that we're seeing. I mean, I'm going to state house districts that are seeing over half a billion dollars of clean energy investment over the last few years, which is huge for them. I mean, when you look at the property tax numbers, you're talking about, you know, a, a parcel of land that might have been paying $200, $300 in property tax. And now after solar, it's paying, you know, $2,500 or $3,000 in property tax. And when you start to add those up, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars to the local communities that wouldn't otherwise be there. So, you know, I'm just curious because from my perspective, it seems like conservatives are accepting clean energy on an economic basis. I'm wondering if you're seeing that as well, or if you're starting to see climate play a larger role. Yeah, I think that's totally uh, true. There are definitely cases of Republican areas adopting solar at the same rates as uh, Democratic areas. There's new research out earlier, um, a few months ago, in the journal Nature Energy by one of my colleagues, Matt Mildenberger, which shows that um, politically active people, whether they're Republican or Democrat, are very likely to adopt solar on their roofs. And so it's not just uh, Democrats who are willing to put solar on their houses. We're seeing lots of Republicans doing it too. And we see that also at the community scale. So community scale solar is something that is happening in a lot of red states. Um, and I think that's because people see that there's value there and that there's money to be made on the community level by transitioning to this clean electricity. And you even see it in a place like Kansas. You know, Kansas um, has put in place a renewable energy law. And uh, when there were efforts by the oil and gas industry to try to weaken that law, a lot of Republican legislators stepped up and said, actually, wind is providing huge amounts of local tax revenue to school districts in rural areas, areas of the state that have historically not received as much investment that have been struggling. Um, You know, wind is a really great new form of property tax revenue for those areas. So when there was a vote uh, to try to get rid of that clean energy law in Kansas, initially, as many Republicans voted against repealing the clean energy law as voted for it. So we definitely see some bright spots where Um, Republicans are seeing the benefits for their communities, and I think that that will hopefully continue to grow. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I mean, we're we're finding the same thing in North Carolina. It's it's really 
eye-opening for a lot of these legislators to see some of the projects that their community can now support. When you put in like a new shopping center or a new housing development, there are new community services that have to go to these developments like, you know, sewage and water and electricity. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, the fire department has to be, you know, cognizant of these places. And now the police department is responding to, to you know, requests that are made out there. And in a solar field or a wind facility, I mean, you have this increased property tax, but you don't have this necessitated new service for the community. So it's really a win-win for everyone that's involved. Uh, you know, I'm curious too, what do you think is the main challenge for clean energy politically? Not not necessarily like the market-driven stuff, but to get more legislators and people in Congress supporting clean energy, what do you think is going to move the needle most? Well, I think that a lot of legislators don't know the very strong support that exists out there for um, acting on climate change. You know, uh, I'm just looking at these amazing maps that uh, exist from the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication, and they allow legislators or any everyday people to look up what kind of support exists uh, for each congressional district or each county area uh, in my area for acting on climate change, for supporting renewable energy and clean energy. And for example, I'm looking at North Carolina right now and every single congressional district, a majority of Republicans support research and development at the federal level into renewable energy sources. And that might be surprising Mm -hmm. to people. Yeah, people might be surprised to hear that. And even when we talk about increasing the amount of clean energy in the state through a renewable portfolio standard, um, the vast majority of areas have a majority of Republicans supporting increasing clean energy in the state through a renewable portfolio standard. And that's just Republicans. If we add in Democrats as well, that that support goes even higher. So, you know, the fact is that there are pretty much as many Republicans who, um, you know, support action as might be a little more skeptical. And people may not know that. And I know that legislators don't know that because we've studied it. I have done surveys of state legislators and their staff, as well as uh, congressional staff. These are chiefs of staff and legislative directors in Congress, which are the most senior staff that help congressional representatives decide how to vote on a bill. And we surveyed all these groups, and we found that they dramatically underestimate support for climate action and support for increasing clean energy. So politicians and their staff might just not know how much public support is out there. And that's why it's really great to have groups like Citizens Climate Lobby, which is a bipartisan group trying to organize the public and communicate their preferences to politicians, um, as well as other kinds of environmental groups that are trying to help staff and legislators understand the really strong support that exists out there. Probably in the last 12 months, a lot of these legislators are starting to see the public support with the strikes that are going on on Fridays um, to try to raise awareness amongst young people around the world um, and all the attention that's been brought to climate change in the last couple of years. I mean, we're seeing things like the biggest gap uh, in terms of Trump's reelection prospects. The area where people are the most skeptical of him right now is on climate change. 
I have had people who really don't follow these issues say to me, it's really bad that the United States has taken itself out of the Paris Agreement. So, you know, this is a place where I think many Republicans are starting to realize that they could be leaving themselves vulnerable. And it is a place where we can have Republican leadership because there are people like Senator John McCain, who has been a wonderful leader on these issues historically, or former Congressional Representative Bob Inglis. He's been a huge climate change champion and clean energy champion. So I think it's time for a new generation of Republicans to um, you know, follow in the footsteps of many others in their party who have in the past been really pro-acting on climate change. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. And, and like I said, in North Carolina, we're lucky to have people like there, there's a representative. We have quite a few champions. I'll just name a few. Representative John Zoka, Senator Vicki Sawyer, Representative Larry Strickland, Representative Pricey Harrison, Mike Woodard, Greg Meyer. I mean, there are so many names that I could throw around that that are that we're lucky to have. And it's great to see the bipartisan support for clean energy. And uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that there's a group in the Southeast called Conservatives for Clean Energy. And what they do every year is a poll to look at the support for clean energy amongst conservatives. And as you mentioned, the vast majority of conservatives support candidates who support clean energy. So it's really a winning issue. And I think that it's something that we'll continue to see more support of. But, you know, I'm curious, what do you what do you expect 2020 is going to do for the future of clean energy? It's a really big year. I mean, we're facing big challenges. Congress did not step up to extend the investment tax credit or the production tax credit very long or to increase electric vehicle tax credits for the biggest manufacturers. And so that's putting a lot more pressure on the states to have to drive this transition. And I think that that will be a big challenge in terms of uh, making sure that we can deploy clean energy at the pace that we know that we need to. Um, so I think that this could be a very big year in terms of the federal government, who's going to be in charge of it, how and whether they're going to prioritize clean energy. Um, but I will say that, for example, um, this bill that came out last week from the Senate, which was a bipartisan bill, uh, has a lot of really interesting ideas about energy efficiency. And energy efficiency is a win-win-win because right. it makes it easier for consumers to pay for their electricity bills, which we know can be a big challenge for a lot of Americans. It brings profits back to communities because over the long term, these these uh, investments pay themselves off, sometimes in as little as three to four years even. And uh, it can really be an amazing job opportunity because you can't ship energy efficiency retrofits overseas. You need people <laughs> right. going home to home to actually be changing out, you know, the furnace and maybe changing from a natural gas furnace to an electric furnace. I think that, in fact, retrofitting homes to remove gas, fossil gas from homes, is a really big vanguard in terms of what we're going to be seeing as the next big actions at the state level. And, um, you know, that can be a great thing because it can bring more electricity demand onto the system and that can bring electric utilities along as partners because they will be able to sell more electricity and hopefully build more clean electricity as we swap out that fossil gas for cooking and home heating and all those kinds of things. So 
you know, all of that can be a really great engine for jobs because um, they're going to, you know, it takes people to go and retrofit homes. And so I'm really hopeful that if we can get our federal government in a bipartisan way to support climate action and support our states taking action and we can get states stepping up and ramping up their targets and taking on big ideas like retrofitting homes to get rid of fossil gas, that we can see really big changes and start to get on track with what we know we need to do to protect states like North Carolina from sea level rise. Definitely. Yeah, the North Carolina is is in the process of releasing our climate change report. And I mean, it clearly shows that we are going to have some some very big changes to uh, the North Carolina landscape uh, in the next, you know, 50 to 100 years. And, you know, the the number one cause of that is going to be man-made emissions. So, So we're really taking a close look at that. You know, just generally, what are you most excited about right now, Leah? Well, it's, t- it's a tough time right now if people are listening to this. You know, we're at the end of a very long Democratic primary. Uh, we have a virus going around the country. Um, so, you know, it's a tough time for a lot of people right now. But I am hopeful that the last year, with all these youth, these young people stepping up and saying we have to start acting on the climate crisis all around the world, I am hopeful that many adults uh, and even grandparents are thinking about their legacy and are thinking, you know, we have the technology we need now. We can pass policies and support the clean energy transition and make sure that we pass on a livable future for our children and our grandchildren. And I think that for people across the political spectrum, that's something that makes sense. We all care about the next generation. And, you know, especially in the South, where there is still a lot of coal plants operating, doing this can have really great air quality co-benefits. And we know that that is something that Republicans really support. I have research that shows that reminding people that when we clean up our electricity grid, we also clean up the air. I love to say that it doesn't matter what your political ideology is, we all like to breathe clean air. Nobody likes to breathe pollution and nobody wants to pass that on to their neighbors or their children or their grandchildren. So I think that there's a lot of room here for action across the political spectrum. And we know that young people, no matter what their political stripe is, they are starting to step up and say, look, we've got to get action going. So I'm probably more hopeful than I've been in a long time. I've been working on this issue for 15 years now. And I think we've got a really great opportunity right now to have state leadership and federal government leadership on this crisis. Yes, definitely. And I, and I think that's really inspiring because you're right. I mean, the co-benefits of clean energy are so manifold that there's something in it for everyone, whether you care about the environment or you care about jobs and the economy. Really, clean energy is such a win-win situation. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Leah, and talking about this because your perspective is so unique and so uh, important to this conversation, especially in 2020. I'm sure you're you're getting you know so many emails of people that want to talk to you and pick your brain. But we're so lucky to have been able to do it on Squeaky Clean today. So I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. And hopefully we'll have a great year ahead for North Carolina as well. 
And there you have it, folks, the 25th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Bring in the latest in clean energy right to your ears. Yes, sir. I, for one, have learned a lot through today's conversation with Miss Leah Stokes. Yeah, Leah is a genius. I mean, she's really on the cutting edge. A lot of this clean energy research that deals with voting trends and polling and... I mean, you're starting to see that clean energy is just getting overwhelming support from both parties. So with that being said, Jarvis, what was your key takeaway from today's show? My key takeaway kind of comes from what you just said. I mean, I really think that politicians have underestimated the bipartisan support for clean energy policies throughout the United States. And this conversation and Leah's research really excites me about what the future holds in the sense of clean energy. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, thank you for that, Jarvis, but you did steal my key takeaway. Yeah, now I stole your key takeaway. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if I would have gone first, you would have stolen my key takeaway. So to be fair, we both just, we can just, you know, call it a draw, I guess. It's it's, it's a team team (laughs) key takeaway. Right, there's no winners or losers here. Oh, yeah, we both work hard. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my key takeaway is pretty much the same thing in that, Clean energy is getting overwhelming bipartisan support. You're seeing it in Leah's research. You're also seeing it, as I mentioned, in the Conservatives for Clean Energy's poll when they come out every year talking about voter trends in relation to clean energy. And it's really exciting to see that clean energy is drawing more support from Republicans, more support from people who are looking for market-driven solutions. And and that's what clean energy provides. It provides a low-cost source of energy that's resilient and reliable. So really excited to see how 2020 treats clean energy because in a lot of ways I think this is the breakout year for clean energy in an election year and I think a lot of people are going to go to the polls with clean energy in mind and they're doing it for different reasons but no matter what reason they're doing it for they're all part of this clean energy future that we're talking about and really excited to see what happens in 2020 because should be a really big year for clean energy. Yep, most definitely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this show. We are really excited to have Leah on the show. Go check her out on Twitter. She's got a lot of great content that she posts about. And thanks again for joining us. We will see you in two weeks. Have a good one, guys.